Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're diving into one of the most significant stories of all time, Peter Pan. A tale as immortal as its ever-childlike protagonist, Pan's adventures have been revamped and retold countless times in the 150 years since its conception. From its initial telling as a satirical fantasy laced with personal tragedy in turn-of-the-century Britain, through its reshaping into a hyper-Americanized piece of post-World War II escapism by both Walt Disney and Broadway, to finally winding up as an ever-underperforming piece of IP in the Hollywood machine, the history of how we tell Peter's story has become as captivating as the story itself. But where did it come from? And why do we, time and again, find ourselves returning to the story of the boy who wouldn't grow up? Sir James Matthew Barry, author of Peter Pan, has ended up as the literary equivalent of a tabloid figure. A lot has been written about his childhood and the tragedies that he faced. The reasons why are obvious. It's hard to hear about the events and not turn into an armchair psychologist, drawing connections between the trauma of his early life, his behaviour as an adult, and of course Peter Pan. There is the danger in doing so that we become desensitised to the fact that this was a real person and these are real horrors. That psychology is complex, and while there are clearly connections to be speculated upon, that's all most of them are, speculation. That being said, Barry wrote a lot about himself and his family, and often draws some concrete lines himself that we can take more at face value. The story starts not with Sir James Matthew Barry, but with his mother, Margaret Ogilvy, years before he was born. Margaret's mother, James's grandmother, dies when Margaret is eight years old. Margaret immediately takes over the responsibilities of the house. Assuming the role of mother before she even hits double digits, Margaret goes on to have ten children. By the time she gets to number nine, one J. M. Barry, on the 9th of May, 1860, we can assume she's a little over it. Yet through all of this, she has time to develop and nurture a real love for story. Barry credits his mother for his love of literature and will go on to write a biography of her. The key men in Margaret's life are the two Davids. Her husband and her favourite son are both named David Barry. When James Matthew is six years old, tragedy strikes again. David Jr. dies in an ice skating accident a day before his 14th birthday. Margaret is completely distraught. Moving into the shoes that David Jr. left behind, J.M. finds himself playing a role much the same as his mother had done all those years earlier. Dressing in his brother's clothes and mimicking his habit of whistling, J.M. does everything he can to try to keep David in his mother's life. This works perhaps too well, culminating in Margaret actually mistaking him for his brother. Is that you, she asks, 
No, Barry replies, it's just me. According to Barry, Margaret ends up finding comfort in the idea that David will always be a boy and will never grow up or leave her. Whether this is the birthplace of Peter Pan or not, and Barry certainly seems to be suggesting it is, the grief and heartbreak remain the same. Two children forced by tragedy to grow up too soon, which is of the era. J.M. Barry comes of age in the immediate aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, where child labour is the norm. By the time he flees to study English literature in Edinburgh, running from his parents' expectations of a stable career, the culture is starting to change. However, it won't be until 1933, four years before his death, that child labour will be outlawed in Britain. Barry quickly establishes himself in the literary community, initially as a theatre critic, then as a short story writer and novelist. His initial work is all set in the town where his mother grew up, and while he's thinking back about her, he goes about creating a family of his own, though in an unconventional way. In 1894, Barry marries actress Mary Ansell. The ceremony is held in his parents' home and is low-key and intimate according to Scottish tradition. Having met through working together on stage, the two have known each other for three years, with Ansel going as far as to care for Barry through several bouts of illness. Supposedly, the relationship is unconsummated, and the two would go on to have no children. The following year, they move to a house in South Kensington. It is here, taking his St. Bernard, Portos, for a walk through the gardens, that he meets the Llewellyn Davies family. Arthur and Sylvia Llewellyn Davies are the parents of five boys, George, John, Michael, Nicholas, and, of course, Peter. Barry quickly befriends the boys and is soon part of the family, becoming known as Uncle James. Despite the fact they are both married, he and Sylvia become close friends. The whole family travels away with J.M. and Mary to Black Lake Cottage, their holiday retreat. There, Barry takes a series of photos of the boys playing. He captions them and crafts them into a book, The Boy Castaways of Black Lake Island. In the years since, there's been frequent speculation as to whether or not Barry's relationship with the boys was in any way paedophilic. It's important to note that all the boys have vehemently denied this, with Nicholas going as far as to say that, I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone, man, woman or child. He was an innocent, which is why he could write Peter Pan. In July of 1909, Barry learns that Mary is having an affair with Gilbert Cannon, one of his colleagues, and has been for over a year. He demands that she end it, and she says no. Scared of the scandal of divorce, he offers her a legal separation, provided she doesn't see Cannon, which she again turns down. Ultimately, he sues for divorce later that year, 
and it's granted on the basis of infidelity. He does manage to avoid the scandal, however, thanks to his clout in the literary community. Friends in high places send letters to the right people, and ultimately only three newspapers end up publishing articles about the divorce. When Arthur Llewellyn Davies dies, Barry and Sylvia become even closer. He starts providing for the family financially, and when she tragically passes away in 1910, Barry reveals to the world that they were engaged to be married. The boys are put into his custody, although their nurse, Mary Hodgson, continued to help raise them. Barry would serve as their father for the rest of his life. But even as a parental figure, Barry can't seem to escape tragedy, and in the span of just five years, Barry will lose two of the boys. Both George and Michael pass away in their twenties, George as a victim of the First World War, and Michael through drowning a month before his 21st birthday. Jumping back a few years, around the time Barry met the Llewellyn Davies boys, is when he conceives of Peter Pan. And fittingly, Barry's first version of Peter Pan is dark. The Little White Bird is a social satire novel, primarily aimed at adults, but in the middle of it is a hundred-page novel within a novel about a week-old infant named Peter Pan who flies out his bedroom window one day and has adventures in Kensington Gardens. When he returns home years later, he finds bars on his window and finds that his mother has had another child to replace him. It's hard to imagine Peter Pan in this form being something enjoyed by children the world over, and the character quickly evolves. The stage play Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up premieres on the 27th of December 1904 in the West End. Here Peter Pan is aged up, now a boy instead of a baby. Part pantomime, part children's adventure story, part social commentary, the play finds immense success with a variety of audiences. Barry later adapts it into a novel, Peter and Wendy. But it's this play that all future versions of Peter Pan derive from. We're now going to briefly tell the story of Peter Pan. If you're already familiar with it, please feel free to skip ahead. Otherwise, here we go. One night, Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, visits the house of the Darling family. He sits outside their window, listening to Mrs. Darling tell stories to the children. The Darling family spot him, and Peter panics, losing his shadow while trying to escape. The following day, when he returns to grab his shadow, he wakes up Wendy, the eldest Darling child. After she helps him reattach his shadow, he invites her to return to Neverland with him, a magical place where time never passes. She agrees, taking her brothers Michael and John with her. The four of them get up to a variety of adventures, alongside Tinkerbell, a troublemaking fairy who is in love with Peter, and the Lost Boys, a gang of missing children who start to view Wendy as a mother. 
they rescue a Native American chieftain's daughter, a girl named Tiger Lily, and then end up fighting a group of pirates. The leader of the pirates is Peter's arch-nemesis, a one-handed man named Captain Hook. Ultimately, he ends up kidnapping Wendy, and Peter goes to save her by kicking Hook into the mouth of a crocodile. Peter takes the Darling family home, promising to return one day, and then leaves. Depending on the version of the story, there is occasionally an epilogue, when Peter returns years later to find Wendy is now a mother and has children of her own. But this is generally when the story ends. The social commentary is far from an afterthought. While less tragic than The Little White Bird, the play is still determined to comment on the world around it. It does this partially through satirising the elite. Captain Hook serves as a stand-in for the dying aristocracy, with Mr Darling representing rising bourgeois power. Looking at Peter Pan, then, at that place in history, it's hard to imagine stripping it of its cultural context. It seems so inextricably tied to loss and tragedy, to a world where it's still not uncommon for children to work. But that's exactly what happens. Forty years later, across the Atlantic Ocean, Peter Pan will have his biggest moment yet. But the boy who never grew up will have to change to fit a new world. If there was anyone who was going to lock on to the adventure story for boys side of Peter Pan, it was Walt Disney. He bought the rights to it in 1939 off the Hospital for Sick Children in London, to which J.M. Barry had left complete ownership of the story upon his death. Walt Disney embodied one of the less savoury parts of Barry's legacy, Peter Pan Syndrome. As thrilling as eternal childishness seems in a story, psychologically speaking, it's not a super-attractive trait in a grown man. Case in point is the Disney Writers' Strike of 1941. A workplace defined by passion and joy, Walt's Animation House is a romantic business in a romantic industry, a dream factory among dream factories. At the highest level, his artists are the best in the business, often left to their own devices, given the space and trust to pursue creative flights of fancy. But accompanying this is a seemingly orderless mess of pay discrepancies and poor organisation. Disney animator William Pyle is quoted as saying, There was no rhyme or reason as to the way the guys were paid. You might be sitting next to a guy doing the same thing as you, and you might be getting $20 a week more or less than him. So, naturally, the animators decide to unionise. On May the 29th, 200 studio workers walk out, halting the production of Dumbo. Walt Disney takes this incredibly poorly. He has caricatures of the strikers drawn into Dumbo and even gets into fights with them at the picket line. It ultimately takes the government intervening, taking representatives from both sides to Washington and organising negotiations, 
for Walt to sign an agreement. And that's not to say he let it go. Even after a multi-year, World War-sized detour, in which the studio becomes a propaganda machine, Walt still holds a grudge. When business returns to normal after World War II, he is completely unenthused by animation. The fun's been taken out of it, and he'd rather play with model trains. Lo and behold, work begins on Disneyland, Walt's very own Neverland. But Disney has the rights to Peter Pan burning a hole in his pocket. After begrudgingly dipping his toe back into features animation with Cinderella, Walt puts Peter Pan back into production in 1949. Post-war, America is at its most affluent and suburban. The nuclear family is dominant, with a generation of American men serving as family breadwinners in isolating, regimented, and early capitalist positions. Reminiscent of Barry decades earlier, many were forced to grow up early, this time by the Second World War, and they are nostalgic for childhoods that felt all too brief, ones defined by boys' adventure stories, cowboys and Indians, buried treasure, and of course, pirates. While Walt Disney's childlike id had been allowed to run around unbridled in his business, his target audience, or rather the parents of his target audience, have been repressing theirs for years. It's also worth noting that suburbia is an oppressive environment for everyone, not just sad dads. The regimented expectations of the American housewife can't help but feel even more draconian than they used to after a lot of women have had a taste for work while all the men were away during the war. With the arrival of culturally prevalent high school education comes academic expectations and children have their lives regimented as well. The culture was primed for pure escapism, for something that feels other, but simultaneously reinforces those key American cultural values of freedom and individualism. Disney's Peter Pan releases in 1953. While it is immensely successful, there's perhaps no better proof that America was having a moment than the fact that another completely separate adaptation of Peter Pan would find success less than a year later. Peter Pan, the Broadway musical, first performed in 1954, is an unparalleled technical achievement. Firstly, as a stage show, it serves as an excellent adaptation of Barry's original play. It integrates original songs effortlessly and brings out the magic and escapism of the text with groundbreaking live technology. Through wire work, Peter Pan is able to fly, completely blowing the minds of everyone in the audience, including those watching at home. The second key achievement of Peter Pan, the Broadway musical, is that it is the first Broadway show broadcast on live national television, shockingly in colour. 65 million viewers tune in to watch, the highest for any single TV programme at this point in history. As an adaptation, the musical has a lot in common with the Disney film. 
It leans into the fantastical elements and pushes a lot of the social commentary to the side. In it, Peter Pan is played by an adult woman, actress Mary Martin. Her performance is a particular highlight and receives praise from critics for its humour and physicality. The musical is restaged regularly, with the most recent restaging taking place in 2014, featuring Christopher Walken as Captain Hook. And while it continues to be immensely successful, it also holds an interesting place in history as arguably the last time an adaptation of Peter Pan actually landed. Three feature film adaptations will follow over the next 60 years, each less successful than the other. The first, Steven Spielberg's Hook, is an outlier in that it is actually a financial success, but the expectations for it are sky-high. Spielberg is perhaps the only one who can contest Walt Disney as being the most appropriate person to adapt Peter Pan. Spielberg has since argued that he got to the film too late, already being a father, and couldn't quite capture the energy. No matter how or why, the film is an immense critical disappointment, and it's only downhill from there. While P.J. Hogan's 2003 Peter Pan isn't reviled, it's met with apathy from both critics and audiences. Joe Wright's 2015 successor, Pan, is almost universally hated. So why has Peter Pan lost favour? How did it go from being a culturally defining moment to box office poison? While we can only speculate, it seems rooted in changing tastes. A lot of the inhabitants of Neverland, namely the Native American characters, come across today as tasteless and inappropriate at best, and racist at worst. Alongside this, every year the world becomes more and more disenchanted with the Peter Pan syndrome. Younger generations are increasingly fed up with childlike men having immense political power, and what once felt like escapism now feels like wish-fulfillment for people they'd rather not think about. But the iconography endures, as does the story. Hollywood has far from given up, with David Lowry's feature adaptation Peter and Wendy currently in development and releasing on Disney Plus sometime in the next two years. And while it may be struggling to find its footing right now, the complicated legacy of The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up is one that has his hands firmly around British and American history, and its impact won't be quickly forgotten. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to Dr. Alison Cavey and Dr. Lester Friedman, who we interviewed for this episode. Unfortunately, we were unable to use their audio due to technical difficulties, but the interviews served as crucial research for this episode and we're incredibly grateful for it. We recommend their books, Second Star to the Right, Peter Pan in the Popular Imagination by Dr. Cavey, and Lester Friedman's new book, Citizen Spielberg, is currently available. It talks about Hook in a lot more depth. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. 
Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by discussing the life and times of the King himself, Elvis Presley. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.